Okay, guys, we're in chapter 11, and we're going to spend, really, this is the final vision. Actually, last week was a preparation for that. But we're going to we're going to spend the next three lessons talking about this final vision, and this vision is actually the reason why some scholars believe it had to be written later, because there's there's no way prophecy could be that accurate. So what we're going to do today, I'm going to give you the prophecies. When we get to a certain point, which is like verse six. I'm going to tell you what the passage is saying, and then I'm going to share with you what the history is, okay, the fulfillment of that, all right? Uh, and you're going to see that Daniel, the dream that he had, the vision that he had was pretty accurate. But there's going to come a point where what he talks about is future. Now, it has implications now. Remember I told you with prophecy there's a near and far fulfillment. And that's where people get messed up and say, well, this has already been fulfilled, where there's aspects of this prophecy that are talking about what's yet to come. And so we're going to uh, see that as we go through this, okay? So we're in Lesson 21. Let's look at uh, verse 2 and uh, notice what is being said here. Now, I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. And the fourth shall be far richer than them all. And by his strength and through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. All right, so let's take a look here. First of all, the angel tells Daniel that the present king will be succeeded by three kings. So the present king of Persia, who at that time was Cyrus, or also known as Darius, would be succeeded by three subsequent kings. And he was. The fourth king, he says to Daniel, will, uh, who will, will arise who is greater in strength and riches. So the fourth king is going to be more powerful and a lot richer than the other three kings. Now, we know this. We know this as the fourth king is Xerxes or Ashuarius is his name, and we also know him as the king who is the king in Esther 1.1, okay, Esther's husband. Okay, remember when you read the book of Esther, or maybe you've seen the movie, Ashuarius or Xerxes is the name of this king. He's the fourth king, and he is the powerful one, all right? But this is the king that they're talking about. Now, this king, Xerxes, this king will make war against Greece. And if you know anything about history, you know that this king is the king who would, was trying to conquer or expand his empire into Greece or Macedonia. Who, even though he's married to Esther, he's not a believer. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not a believer. But this is the king who makes war against Greece or tries to conquer Greece. Now, let's look at the prophecy concerning Greece. Look with me at verse uh, 3 through 35. Actually, we're just going to go up to verse 5. Okay? Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great domination and do according to his will. 
And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards four winds of heaven. But not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. And also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. And his dominion shall be a great dominion. Okay, let's just, we'll just stop right here. First thing I'm going to show you is a map. Okay, first of all, uh, a great Grecian king will arise and establish a great empire. Now we know that as who? Yeah, this we know this king as Alexander the Great. And so when Alexander the Great took over, he started out over here in Macedonia. Okay? Started out here in Macedonia, and there's some intrigue as to how he rose to power. Um, he, he possibly had, you know, either his mother or himself had his father Philip killed. Okay? His father was the king. And it was either his mother or even even Alexander himself possibly had them killed. But what he ended up doing was is he expanded his kingdom. All right, he united all of the all of the areas of Greece under under him. And then from there they took they defeated the Persian Empire, came down through here, and he actually expanded his uh he expanded his kingdom all the way into India, okay, all the way over into India. So that means he took all of Persia, what's, what would be Afghanistan, part of Pakistan, all the way into India, okay. He came down here, took Egypt, and established the city of Alexandria. He is the one who built Alexandria, okay. He is the one who built Alexandria. So... What we want to see now is is that again we know him as Alexander the Great. Okay? Alexander the Great. Now verse four tells us that the empire will be divided into four parts. Because guess what happens to Alexander the Great? Okay? Well, one thing that happens with Alexander the Great is, is because of his great empire and being at the, the, the height of power and, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, he begins to think of himself as being a what? A god, okay? And to be honest with you, the culture of the times, the mindset of the people, it was very common for rulers and kings, especially of powerful empires, to view themselves as deity. In fact, is that not what the Caesars thought? Okay. In fact, they had a cult that worshipped the Caesar. All right. So he falls into that same trap. The only problem is, is he gets sick and dies, possibly from malaria. Okay. Now, when he dies, his kingdom has to be divided because he has no heirs. And so what we see here is the four kingdoms that come out of it, okay, so Macedonia is its own, this area of Greece is a second kingdom, then what we see here is this kingdom right here, which we will call, as we look at this uh, at this prophecy, the kingdom of the north, all right, the kingdom of the north, and then the kingdom of the south. 
Now, this is how it first started out, okay? So that's A.D., I mean, excuse me, B.C., 323 B.C. This is right after he dies. This is how it was divided. You're going to see as the prophecy goes on that these borders shift, okay? So Damascus then becomes the center of the northern, the king of the north, and of course, down here in Egypt, this becomes the kingdom of the south, okay? Now, this is significant to this prophecy that we're going to talk about, because at some point, and it's going to start here soon, it's going to shift as far as who it's talking about. It's not going to talk about the prophecy, because again, it's, we're dealing with Israel, is not going to talk about these two kingdoms up here. You're not going to hear these two mentioned anymore, except that it was divided into four parts. Everything from this point on is going to focus on the king of the north and the king of the south. Okay? Does everybody understand? And that's significant because even when we talk about the far future. So here's what happens. It will not go to the children of this great king because Alexander didn't have any kids. Okay? He had no kids. No children. He died in his, he died young. He died in his early thirties, just so you understand. Okay? He died in his early thirties, basically started out around twenty and just went from there conquering. Okay? So, the other thing is we know that this kingdom was divided among Alexander's four generals. So he had four top Greek generals. Okay? who basically divided this kingdom into four kingdoms. And this became what was known through the Middle East as the Hellenized period. Helen is the, is the word referring to Greek. This became the Greek period. And so this was when most of that Middle East area there became under the influence of Greek thought, Greek tradition, Greek gods, and uh, Greek thinking and so forth. All right? Now, the prophecy in this section deals with two of the four kingdoms. So it's the two of the four kingdoms, the king of the south and the king of the north. That's the bottom two parts of the kingdom. This is what the prophecy is going to deal with. And again, the reason why is because this prophecy has to do with who? Israel. That's the primary focus of this prophecy. Okay? Now, Historically, we know these kingdoms as the Ptolemies, okay, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, okay? We know these kingdoms as the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Now, here's what I want you to see. The king of the south was given what? Egypt. The king of the south was given Egypt. The king of the north was given Babylon. Was given Babylon. In fact, we're going to see later that the king of the north has Damascus or Syria. Okay? Now, let's stop for a moment. The king of the north is Syria into Babylon. The king of the south is Egypt. Okay, let's stop for a moment. When you're looking at the news, and you're looking at the Middle East, and you're not talking about Egypt, I mean, excuse me, Israel, 
where right now is the two hottest places in the news right now, because Iraq's no longer, yeah, they still got some things going on there. Yeah, forget Iran, because that's Persia. But where right now in the news are the two major places that are in the news all the time? Syria and Egypt, which are the ancient what? King of the north, king of the south. Keep that in mind as we go through this prophecy. Okay? Keep that in mind as we go through that prophecy. All right? So, let's take a look now. We're going to look, we're going to go verse by verse here. I'm going to read it to you. I'll give you an explanation of what the text is saying, and then I'm going to give you the historical context. Okay? So the first one, first part, because we're dealing with the king of the north and the king of the south. Look at what verse 6 says. By the end of some years, they shall join forces. That's the king of the north and the king of the south. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority. Neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. All right, so here's what I want you to see. First of all, an alliance is formed through marriage between the two kingdoms. So there's going to be at some point, many years after this kingdom is divided, there's, you're going to see that there's going to be an alliance between the king of the north and the king of the south. And in many ways, how alliances were formed was through what? Marriages. Okay, so another way of historically looking at that, if you go to uh First Kings, and you look at the, the, the life of Solomon, whenever he established a treaty with another kingdom, that king usually gave what to Solomon to, to ratify the treaty? Usually the, his, his daughter was given to Solomon. Okay? So he actually ended up marrying the daughters of all these other kingdoms around him. Okay? Because they were making an alliance with him. Now here's the problem, though. The alliance is short-lived, as the bride loses her life. Okay, the alliance is short-lived as the bride loses her life. Now, here's what happened in history. The two kingdoms were bitter enemies. They entered into into an alliance about 250 B.C. The alliance was sealed by the marriage of Ptolemy II's daughter, Bernice, to Antiochus II, the king of the north. This marriage, however, did not last long, for Lodicea, whom Antiochus had divorced in order to marry Bernice, so okay, Antiochus, the king of the north, he had another wife. But in order to marry the wife of this king of the south, he had to divorce his wife. Okay? He had to divorce his wife, whose name was Laodicea. Okay? And here's what she did. She, uh, she had Bernice, she had the second woman killed. Okay? She was handed over. That's what that phrase handed over means. So Laodicea then poisoned Antiochus II and made her son Seleucus II, Seleucus Calcanus, king, and that was, and he ruled from 246 to 227. Okay? See how that's interesting, the scripture there? Look now at verse 7 and 8, the prophecy there about the victory of the north. But from the branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. 
And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt, and their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. What's going on here? The brother of the bride will avenge his sister and defeat the king of the north. Okay? So you can see now, they're bitter enemies anyhow. They enter into this alliance. You know, they send, you know, they send a daughter. She gets, she gets knocked off by a jealous ex-wife, you know, and, and, and so now vengeance is happening here. So here's what happens. The bride's brother, which is Ptolemy III, and he ruled from 246 to 221, succeeded his father and set out to avenge this, the death of his sister Bernice. He was victor, victorious over the Syrian armor, the army, the king of the north. He put Laodicea to death, so he put the woman who had his sister poisoned to death, and returned to Egypt with many spoils. Okay, that's historical fact. All right, let's go on now. We're going to look now at, it just continues on with the prophecy. Look now at verse 9 and 10. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Okay, so here's what happens. The king of the north sought to invade Egypt, but was turned back. All right, so he sought to invade Egypt, but was turned back. We see that there in verse 9. Now, his two sons sought to restore the prestige of the kingdom of the north. So here's what happens in history. After this humiliating defeat, Seleucus II, the king of the north, sought to invade Egypt but was unsuccessful. And after his death, he fell from a horse and died. Okay? Fell from a horse and died. He was succeeded by his son, Seleucus III, which was... 227 to 223, so he only ruled four years, okay, who was then killed by conspirators while on a military campaign in Asia Minor. Then his brother, um, Antiochus III, became ruler in 223 at the age of 18, and he reigned for 36 years. Now, both brothers sought to restore Syria's lost prestige by military conquest. The older son by invading Asia Minor, which is that Turkey area, okay, and the younger by attacking Egypt. Egypt had controlled all the territory north of the borders of Syria, which included the land of Israel. Antiochus III succeeded by driving the Egyptians back to the southern borders of Israel in his campaign, in 219 to 217. Okay, now let's look at verse 11 through 13. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and will go out and fight with him and with the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. And when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will be cast down tens of thousands but will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a great a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come to the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. All right, so here's what the text is telling us. The king of the south 
attacked the king of the north and slaughtered his army. And then what we're going to see here now is that the king of the north returned with a greater army and defeated the king of the south. So here's what happened in history. Ptolemy IV came to meet Antiochus III. Okay, so the king of the south came to meet the king of the north at the southern borders of Israel. So Ptolemy IV was initially successful in delaying the invasion of Antiochus. In fact, it's, history tells us that Ptolemy IV slaughtered many thousands of troops. But after a brief interruption, Antiochus returned with another army, much larger, and turned back the king of the south. Okay? All right. Boy, we really flew through that lesson. Anybody got questions so far? Because we may go ahead and go on. All right? Anybody got a question? Here's the thing. You say, wow, do many scholars believe that the history verifies this prophecy? Yes, that's why many think that it had to be written afterwards. So the issue of what your text says is viewed as historically verified. Okay? The question is, is as to where, when it was written. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because when we're writing here, we're writing from a guy who's living in the 6th century before Christ. These events that we're looking at here are taking place in the 3rd century before Christ. So there are at least 200 years. He, the prophecy is 200 years before they actually take place. Yes, go ahead. We're looking at the near right now, the near fulfillments, okay? Because what's going to happen is, is in the next lesson, we're going to be introduced to a guy. Remember now, we're, we're meeting Antiochus III right now. We're going to meet, in the next lesson, a guy by the name of Antiochus IV, okay? And he is the one who is, some of the prophecies have, prophecies have already talked about him, but also have talked about, that type of person in a far, far fulfillment, which is in the Antichrist. Okay? So we're going to see that because there is some historical accuracy here. And so some people think this, that the other prophecies have been fulfilled. Well, you know what? If, if these prophecies so far have been fulfilled that precisely, surely the rest of them are going to be fulfilled precisely. And you're going to see that some of the prophecies that we're looking at have not described any of the events yet. They're yet far future. Okay? Anybody else with a question? So is the only reason they don't believe They cannot believe because if you do not believe in the supernatural, okay, the, the, the concept that these had to be written afterwards emerged in the 1800s with the Enlightenment and among German theologians known for basically what they call higher criticism, okay? And that's basically when you look at the Bible, you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you believe because of your scientific mind that there's no possible way that there could be miracles or any kind of supernatural or God thing going on, so you remove that possibility altogether. So if you remove that concept altogether, you have to deal with the reality that, okay, well, these prophecies are pretty accurate. How is that possible? Well, since we cannot have anything supernatural, or we cannot believe that there's a God who maybe predicts the future, 
or tells us what the future is going to be, I should not say predict, because God doesn't predict, he tells us, okay, then it has to be written after these events took place. It had to be written afterwards because of the accuracy of it. Yeah. Now, here's what it does for you, though. When we get to the far fulfillment of the things, though, because not all of these prophecies have been fulfilled. For you and I as believers who do believe that God exists, who does work, okay, when you look at it and you can look at it and say, okay, wow, half of it's already come true. Half of it is historically accurate. So I can bank on the other part of it as that's going to come to happen. And, for instance, how do I know that Jesus Christ is going to return, folks, ultimately? How do I know that Jesus Christ is going to return? Okay, he told us, but how do I know that I can believe Jesus? Okay, that's good, Bruce, but there's another reason. What? Not just faith. How do I know that Jesus said he was coming back and he's going to come and get me? How do I know that? How do I know that that's accurate? Well, not just the scriptures. There's there's an event that happened because he told me he was going to die and rise again. The resurrection. See, the resurrection, this is why it is a significant event that you believe the resurrection. If you don't believe the resurrection, then everything's out the window. Because the resurrection validates everything that Jesus said. Because Jesus predicted his own death, his resurrection also. And the fact that he rose from the dead tells us, okay, I mean, the guy who said he was going to die, be buried, and rise again on the third day, I better believe him if he says he's coming back, right? Okay? So do you understand what I'm saying? It's the same thing here with these prophecies in Daniel. The reality is, is that when I see the historical things happening here in fulfillment of this prophetic, then the reality is, is that when we get to the far fulfillment of things, and we're going to see that, I can believe it's going to happen because the other things have already happened. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, all right, Ralph, you had your hand up. Uh, he may have been philosophically stoic, yes. I'm not sure what his his own personal thing was, but I do know that towards the end he did see himself as God. That's historical. You know, I mean, if you go and uh, look at the record, yeah, he would see himself. He would he proclaimed himself deity. Now, that's not uncommon for that era, though, because most kings, even though they were human, they another word would be a demigod. Okay, they would view themselves as it's in their in their thinking. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So, for instance, there's a new movie coming out now uh, that's going to be coming out in the next year, Hercules. Okay, uh, you know he he was a you know the concept is coming out of the Greek. The the Greek mind embraced the possibility that it's possible to have somebody to be part partly deity or deity. Okay, so. When we look at what's happening here, I think what we're going to find significant, the primary two kings that we're dealing with in this prophecy is the king of the north, which is Syria, 
and the king of the south, which is Egypt. And we're going to see those two, and it's going to go over into the prophecy concerning that's yet to be fulfilled. So, for instance, we're going to see that the future ruler is angry at both kings and will destroy them. But there's another kingdom in there, Edom, that he is friends with that he leaves alone. Now, does anybody know where Edom is today? Have you looked at your map lately? No, no, Edom, the, the, the people of Edom. Do you know where that is? Okay, if you look in your Bible map in the back, okay, if you want to, you never get to use your Bible map, so sometimes you can use your Bible map. If you look at them, you'll see Edom, Moab. Okay, Edom is what is today modern-day Jordan. Okay, so modern-day Jordan has a an agreement with or is friends with whoever the future ruler is going to be, and they're spared. Do you understand? We're going to get to that next week. Okay? So, did you understand what I'm saying? So, the primary two... So, when I look at news today, I'm not saying we're close. I'm just looking at it and thinking, wow. It is significant that Israel came back, 1948. It's also significant to me that there's upheaval right now where? Syria. It's also significant to me that there's upheaval where else? Egypt. And you just got to look over the last 50 years. Those two nations have been an issue with who? Israel. In fact, how many of you know this, that during the 50s, those two nations actually had a, a, had a uh, they actually joined together. Did you know that? They actually, for like a period of years, actually were combined? Yeah, during the 50s. Go back and look at history. And it didn't last long, but those two nations were actually combined. So, so do you understand what I'm saying? So we're dealing with, so when you look at the news, you can say, okay, we're moving there. Might be another hundred years, but we're moving there. Okay? That's why, to me, Daniel is so powerful. And it's whether or not you believe this was before and if it is, boy, God's kind of given us an idea, isn't he? And we're going to see next week some more of what he's going to tell us. Okay?